0: Amen. We are going to try to get into the word of the Lord tonight, and um, I ask you to bear with me as I struggle with this voice of mine yet again. One of these days, it'll be clear. It may not be till we're Shouting on the hills of glory, but one of these days, it'll be clear, praise God. Hallelujah. We're going to turn to the book of Revelation, Revelation chapter one, and um, I felt to go back into this study tonight. We're we're getting close to the end, uh, depending on how long I take on these churches, (laughs) But we have, uh, we have Sardis left, which we're going to try to deal with tonight. And as much as I want to finish it tonight, I have my doubts. But the good news is, Brother Hilton last night said something about me. What was it you said? You, you, you said something about wanting me, you like for me to talk longer or something. And uh, he really said that. So I said, I'm going to remind you that Tuesday night before I preach and uh, you don't have to say that It was he made the statement he made the statement and so um, so if I go too long blame him tonight um, but I have a lot of notes in front of me and it's going to be very difficult to get it all into one lesson as much as I don't want to have to break it up It's probably going to happen that way. And so I'm not going to get in a rush tonight. I'm going to just take my time. There are some things that I feel like the Lord wants to talk to us about. We have this church of Sardis we're going to talk about tonight. And then uh, all we have left is Philadelphia and Laodicea. And we'll be done. We'll be done with these seven churches. And so we're going to try to continue on through this study and learn some things and we'll talk to you about all of that here in just a moment. Revelation chapter 1, verse number 19, Revelation chapter 1 and verse number 19, praise God, amen, the Lord is calling, praise God, Revelation chapter 1 and verse 19. Praise God The Lord speaking to John on the isle of Patmos says write the things which thou hast seen and the things which are and the things which shall be hereafter the mystery of the seven stars which thou sawest in my right hand and the seven golden candlesticks the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven candlesticks which thou sawest, are the seven churches. Now we read other verses in weeks gone by. I'm, I'm going to try to uh, to abbreviate this and the review as much as I can tonight. Uh, it has been a while since I've taught on it. In fact, the last time I taught on it, uh, I didn't actually teach, but Brother Hilton Uh, was my errand that night and finished out the lesson on Thyatira. So it's been a while since I taught on this and uh, I don't want to get too sidetracked with the review. And yet it is important that everyone is on the same page and that we understand where we're coming from. And so there are a few things that I will say tonight by way of review and then we'll try to get right into the church of Sardis. Amen. Praise God. Would you put your Bibles down and ask the Lord to speak to us tonight and uh, specifically ask him to speak to you tonight. Amen. I, I want us to have ears to hear what the Spirit says to the church. Amen. Let's pray together right now, everybody. Lord, in the name of Jesus Christ, I thank you, God pray, O Lord, hear us tonight, help us tonight. Lord God, I ask you, Jesus, that you would anoint these lips of clay. God, I can do nothing without your help, and I don't want to try. God, I pray that as I stand behind this sacred desk tonight, I could be your mouthpiece to speak to this people the things that you would have me to say. God, I pray that they can receive with meekness the engrafted word that's able to save their souls. Help us, mold us, shape us through the pages of your word tonight. We thank you for it in Jesus' name. Let's worship him one more time. Everybody, before we're seated, let's worship the Lord. Praise the name of the Lord. Praise the name of the Lord. Oh, hallelujah, hallelujah. Thank God, thank God. Amen. You may be seated, um, but I would like for you to keep in mind the things that I said on Sunday morning and how important it is that there be a connection between the pulpit and the pew. This is not bedtime story. Uh, This is the word of God. And we need to receive it as the word of God. God does have some things he wants to say to his church. And I want us to be in tune with the spirit of God. Amen. We've talked about over a number of weeks these seven churches that are listed here uh, in the book of Revelation And for the sake of those who have not been a part of the previous lessons, let me just point out a couple of things very quickly. First of all, I know that there are those who teach that this is representative of seven church ages. I disagree with that. I disagree with it wholeheartedly. I don't believe that these are seven church ages. I don't believe that the church is going to end in a Laodicean condition. I just don't believe that's the way God works. No, I don't believe that we're going to finish this thing up in, in worse shape than the way the church started. Right. 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 Amen. Hallelujah. Now, it, uh, there are a number of things that are represented by these churches. But we have to keep in mind these were seven literal churches. They actually existed they were real congregations of people and these letters were real letters that were sent to these congregations and so the things written herein were uh, important to the members of these local assemblies praise god amen and uh, and, and there are some things here and we're going to talk about some of this. We're going to actually incorporate some of the review as we get into the lesson because there are things that are dealt with in uh, the letter to Sardis that uh, we usually cover in review, but they are dealt with specifically in the letter, and so we'll deal with them uh, when we get to those verses. Now, Uh, I will tell you that I believe that God chose seven churches for a very specific reason. There were many other churches in Asia and in other places that God could have addressed. But he specifically called out these seven. And why seven? What is the significance of seven? Well, again, we'll talk about that some when we get into the lesson, but, but we do know and understand that seven is God's number of perfection or completion. And so what I believe, and it's important that I say this tonight, I believe that the reason there are these seven letters is because if we will take these seven letters and look at the things that God condemned and the things that God commended, then we'll get a picture of what God's idea of a perfect church is. And understand that that I'm not using the word perfect the way that we use it today. Uh, If if we're going to use perfect to mean without flaw not capable of making mistakes, there is no such church. But God doesn't define perfection that way. Perfection in the scripture is defined as spiritual maturity or absolute wholeness. It is having everything that is necessary. A perfect church to God is not one that doesn't have any problems. But it's one that has everything God wants it to have, that as a church, it has the right attitude toward the things that God hates. Praise God. And so we're going to learn from these churches, have been learning from these churches. Uh, There are things about these letters that I've pointed out week after week. um, and, And there are some consistencies that run through these letters, each letter. Contains either a commendation, something that God commends them for, or a condemnation, something that God rebukes them about. And most of the churches received both commendation and condemnation. There was correction and yet there was also uh, praise in most of them, not all of them. But in most of them, uh, there was only one church that God did not correct at all. And that was the church at Philadelphia. There was nothing that God pointed out about that church that he found wrong with that assembly. And that's a pretty amazing thing. That's a pretty amazing thing. Now, there were churches, two of these seven, that did not contain uh, anything good. God found nothing good to commend them for. that's also a pretty amazing thing. And I don't wanna be in that condition, amen. Now each of these letters contains either a promise or, uh, well I should say either a positive promise or a negative promise. God's either going to give them something or he's going to do something to them. He's going to do something for them or do something to them dependent on their condition and dependent on their response to the letter. Because God is watching for our response. Well, praise God. In these letters, the Lord generally makes some reference uh, that is connected directly to the name of the church. And we're going to see that again tonight. And then every letter uh, closes with the same plea. Let him that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. Every letter received uh, that same plea. And the last thing that I need to point out uh, as far as a generic review is that uh, these letters were to be written to were to be read among all the churches, not just the churches to which they were written. And therefore, they are applicable to us some 2,000 years later. They were to be read to all the churches. Amen. Now, I won't go through each church. You're just going to have to go back and listen to those messages. Uh, But so far, we've talked about Ephesus. We've talked about Smyrna, Pergamos, and Thyatira. Four out of the seven. Tonight, we begin with number five, and that is the Church of Sardis. Now, that's probably the quickest review I've done since we started this series, but I really want to get into this lesson tonight, and uh, and I need you to bear with me for a few minutes because the next few minutes are going to be just a little bit different than my normal uh, style of preaching or teaching but there is some history that I want to share with you about Sardis that is important to really understand the letter and I've been doing this uh this time as we've gone through these churches something I did not do in the past but but I've found it to be very enlightening to dig a little deeper and to go into the history uh, either of the church or the city or, or the pastor or whatever. There's always something significant uh, that we don't just see on the surface. And so it's worth the time to go into some things that uh, uh, may not be uh, as exciting, but it will help us. To better understand where we're headed Alright, so will you ride with me for a few moments here Let me talk to you about the history of the city of Sardis Sardis has a very interesting history It actually, uh, when you start studying the history of Sardis then, Then you see a direct connection To the spiritual condition of the church At the time that this letter was written It's interesting how the history of that city obviously influenced and affected the church rather than the church affecting the city. Well, hallelujah. Now, Sardis, Sardis right now, you can actually travel over there and there is a very small village uh, where this once world renown, very rich and extremely powerful city once stood it's now just a small village there's not much there and when i tell you the history of sardis you'll understand a little bit of why it reached this kind of devastation archaeologists have gone in and they have uh, been uncovering things in the ancient city of Sardis and they have found remains of a distant glory that was around this city. Uh, they found ruins of a number of structures. They, they found a, a very massive bath slash gymnasium complex uh, in this city that the wealthy would frequent. Uh, this city of Sardis was one of the greatest cities of the world at the time that this letter was written. It was an extremely important city. Very powerful, very rich. It was the capital of Lydia, and the king lived in this city. In fact, a number of kings uh, whose names are famous in history, lived in the city of Sardis. Now, to understand Sardis, you've got to understand that this city was actually founded on a high mountain ridge. Uh, They say somewhere between uh, 900 and 1,500 feet uh, up is where this city was located. It was actually on a plateau. Uh, It had sheer walls straight up and down on three sides of this plateau you couldn't get up those sides the fourth side was not as sheer but it was also very difficult to get up there it was not an easy task to make your way to the city of Sardis now its wealth was legendary Near the city of Sardis, archaeologists have found tombs with thousands of relics, uh, utensils, ornaments of gold, precious stones, uh, all the things that wealthy people had. Amen. Gold was one of the mainstays of this city. And that's how they became so rich. Now, as I said, they're located on a plateau. Uh, It's difficult to get there, to get to them. And because it was so difficult to get there, they developed a sense of comfort and safety. Nobody can touch us. They can't get to us. There's only one side of this plateau that they could even think about trying to scale. And so they felt very confident that no one would ever overthrow them. They felt absolutely invincible. All right. Hallelujah. Now, all of this is important as you, as you start reading the letter to the church at Sardis. It's all important. Now, uh, what happened because they felt so, uh, um, Secure And and they felt so strongly that they could not be defeated. Uh, It actually resulted in a carelessness that ended up being their downfall. Let me tell you a little bit about it. The greatness of Sardis began coming to an end when its king decided to go to war with Cyrus the king of Persia, recorded in the scripture. Most powerful man in the world at that time. And yet the king of Sardis thought, we're strong enough, we're powerful enough, we'll take on Cyrus and the armies of Persia. And so they did. And they lost. Well, the king wasn't worried about them losing. Because Brother Goff, his mindset was, we'll just run back to our plateau. We know how to get up there. We know uh, how to to come and go from there. They don't. We'll go up there. We'll be safe from them. We'll recover, and we'll come back and attack again when they least expect it. Well, Cyrus decided that's not going to happen. Cyrus knew that they claimed to be impenetrable, but he didn't believe that they were. And so he offered a large reward to anyone that could find an entrance into their city. Now look, you offer somebody a big enough reward and they're going to do their best to claim that reward. And so the soldiers began scouring the landscape to try to find a point of entry. And one day they noticed something. They noticed that this mountain on which Sardis sat, it it wasn't all solid rock. But that, that fourth side, that was difficult to scale but not entirely impossible, was really more, uh, I guess you could say, hard packed mud than it was rock. And because of that, they knew it's going to crack. There are going to be crevices in this somewhere. And so they began to watch. And one day they noticed one of the soldiers from Sardis drop his helmet and fall down into a crevice and retrieve it come back out and said okay there's one they just kept watching from a distance they then saw one leader of the army leading an entire troop they seemed to disappear and the armies of Persia said there's something there and they then at the right time started trying to get through that fault line now, let me tell you, they made it. And when they got to the top, they were shocked to find that the city was totally unguarded. They were so convinced that nobody would get there that they failed to set a watch. Watch. Now that's important for what the Lord has to say to Sardis. They failed to set a watch. And as a result, the armies of King Cyrus, the armies of Persia overthrew that city. And and in fact, uh, history says that when they took that city, they actually took with them the equivalent, get this, the equivalent of six Hundred million dollars in treasure from Sardis now I find it interesting maybe you don't but I find it interesting that this happened some 10 to 15 years before Cyrus gave the decree for the Jews to go back to Israel and build the temple and Cyrus financed the building of the temple about a dozen years after he captured Sardis and collected $600 million, do you think that maybe, maybe God allowed Cyrus to be used at that moment, first of all, to try to teach Sardis a lesson? That you can never get to a place that somebody can't bring you down if you're not trusting in God if you only trust to yourself you're not gonna make it i don't care how impenetrable you think you may be i'm telling you there's an enemy out there that can bring you down if you don't have the help of god and perhaps in teaching sardis a lesson he also used cyrus to help to finance the building of that glorious temple when the Jews went back to their homeland. Now, that's not the end of the story. Fast forward about 300 years, 325, 330 years. And once again, Sardis has grown comfortable. Once again, they have now rebuilt 300 years is a long time. And they've forgotten about what happened to them with Cyrus. And guess what happens a second time? Once again, an enemy made entrance into the city through a crack in the ground. And once again, when they got to the top, they found the city totally unguarded. This is a history of Sardis. And it's important. This is not just trivia that I'm giving you. But I'm telling you this was a problem with the people of Sardis. That they did not understand how important it was to keep watch. They did not understand the significance of it. Now you fast forward then uh, a few hundred years and around the year 17 AD the city was destroyed by an earthquake Tiberius who was the Roman emperor uh, wanted to help uh, Sardis rebuild and so he did he gave them uh, what would today be about 240 million dollars To rebuild. Plus, he, history says, remitted uh, their, their taxes. Or, in other words, he said, you don't have to pay any tax to Rome for the next five years. So he gives the city $240 million and says, you don't owe any taxes for five years. And he allowed Sardis to rebuild and to once again gain a position of prominence. And that brings us to just about the time when the letter was written. Now, As I said, this happened with the earthquake in 17 AD. It took them a number of years after that to get things rebuilt, to get the city up and going again. John's letter... uh, to the church at Sardis it was written somewhere between 60 and 100 AD. So you're looking at 30, 40 years, 50 years uh, after they had been given this money to try to start rebuilding their city. And, and they had reached again a place of power and prominence when God spoke to John and said, Send a letter to the church in that city. So with that in mind, let's read the letter. And let's see if just reading the letter doesn't make a little bit more sense with the history that I've given you tonight.
1: Revelation chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. And unto the angel of the church in Sardis write, These things saith he, that of the seven spirits of God, and the seven stars, I know thy works, that thou hast a name, that thou livest, and art dead. Be watchful and wait, strengthen wait, 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 the things. Wait, wait, what, what was that? And are dead. No, no, what,
0: what, what, yeah, and are dead, but what's the next thing? The very...
1: Be watchful.
0: Say that again.
1: Be watchful. Isn't
0: that interesting? That he's telling the church at Sardis be
1: watchful. Be watchful. Read. Be watchful and strengthen the things strengthen which remain. Strengthen the
0: things that remain.
1: That are ready to die. They're
0: ready to die.
1: For I have. For I have not found thy works perfect before God. Remember, therefore, how thou hast received and heard, and hold fast and repent. Hold
0: fast and repent.
1: If therefore thou shalt not watch, I will come on thee as a thief, and thou shalt not know what hour I will come upon thee. Thou hast a few names, even in Sardis, which have not defiled their garments, and they shall walk with me in white. For they are worthy. He that overcometh, the same shall be clothed in white raiment. And I will not blot out his name out of the book of life. But I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches.
0: All right. I think maybe you understand a little better some of the, some of the underlying message that Jesus is giving to the church when you understand the history of the city. And it's obvious that the history of the city was quickly becoming the history of the church. Now, as for the name Sardis, the name uh, some scholars say means remnant or that which is left. And again, the Lord's gonna make reference. He did make reference. We read it here. We're gonna talk about it. Lord willing, in just a few moments. One of the interesting things about the letter to the church at Sardis, I don't know if you notice this as we're going through it, but every letter up till this point, God has opened this letter with words of commendation. He starts by telling them what's right. He starts out by letting them know here's what you've done properly. Here's what I'm pleased with. And that was the way he did it for the churches we've dealt with so far. But when we get to the church at Sardis, he does not open with any words of commendation. Look at it again. Verse number 1, Revelation 3, verse 1.
1: And unto the angel of the church in Sardis write, These things saith he that hath the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know thy works, that thou hast a name, that thou livest and art dead. I'm telling you, he
0: just jumped right into it. He didn't spend any time trying to build them up. He just immediately tells them what's wrong. Now, again, it's also interesting to note how the Lord identifies himself. We've talked about this with other churches. The way that he identifies himself in each letter is different. But there's a significance behind what he's saying. So here he says, These things saith he that hath the seven spirits of God. The seven spirits of God. Now, that's, that's interesting to me. And, and don't get sidetracked. Don't start thinking now there's 10 persons in the Godhead. <laughs> or even eight. The seven spirits remember that already in the book of Revelation, the Lord has been using this number seven with a specific purpose to show completion, to show absolute wholeness, to show, if you please, perfection. And so he identifies himself as the one who has the seven spirits of God. He is the perfect one. Everything that the spirit of God entails dwelt in him. For in him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. He says to Sardis, I am the perfect one. That's important for what he's going to say in verse 2. So just tuck that away in your mind and we're going to come back to it. But but that's what he's dealing with and and as I said, we we need to understand the number seven means completion, perfection one is the number of God six is the number of man listen, man can never be perfect or complete without adding that one we're always going to fall short And I'm telling you, he's stressing that to Sardis. You may feel confident. You may feel like you've got your act together. You may think you've got all your ducks in a row. But I want you to know the perfect one is looking at you. And you're not going to get anything done by your own wit, your own wisdom, your own power, your own might. It's not going to happen. seven spirits of God hallelujah now he also reminded them that he had the seven stars this is part of that review that we usually bring in that i did not do because i knew we would get to it right here so
1: read for me uh, again revelation 1 verse 20 the mystery of the seven stars which thou sawest in my right hand and the seven golden candlesticks The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven candlesticks which thou sawest are the seven churches. All right, so
0: here's what we see. Jesus says to John, the seven stars are the angels. The Greek word is angelos. It means messenger. The seven stars are the messengers of the seven churches and the seven candlesticks which thou sawest are the seven churches so so Jesus has already identified what he means by the seven stars they are the pastors of these churches and then he says to Sardis I am the perfect one I have the perfect complete spirit of God and I have the seven stars They are mine. They belong to me. Now this is just my personal opinion, which I've promised you throughout the years that when it was my opinion, I would tell you it's my opinion. This is my opinion. I can't prove it. But I think that when the Lord said this, it was a bit of an indirect way of letting that pastor know in Sardis, I'm holding you responsible. You're in my hand. Now listen, I can spend a lot of time talking about this. I don't want to. It's not a part of my lesson. I've got, I've got far too much ground to cover to get into this in depth. But let me just tell you something. Amen. You don't have to worry about trying to correct the pastor. I'm telling you that I am in the hand of God. It's a safe place to be, but it's a dangerous place to be. And God knows how to put the squeeze on me. And God knows how to reprimand the ministry. Well, are you going to help me tonight? God knows how to do it. And I'm telling you, I believe this was his way without Publicly stating it to the whole church. I believe he was just saying to that pastor. I want you to understand something. You are responsible for letting this church get into the condition that it's in. This is your job to fix this. Well, hallelujah. Now, what was wrong with the church? Well, here's what he said. Let's read verse one again.
1: And unto the angel of the church in Sardis write these things: saith he that hath the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know thy works. I know thy works. That thou hast a name. That, that thou, thou, thou livest hast a name.
0: That thou livest
1: and art dead.
0: And art dead. You're putting it out there to everybody that you're alive. You're trying to convince everybody. That everything's okay. But I want you to know, as the perfect one, that's not the way I see it. And the way you see yourself is not the way that God sees you. Well, praise God. I'm telling you, God sees things we cannot see. We can get to the place we feel really good about ourselves. And we think we're really doing well. And then some problem come our way and we say, God, why did this happen? Well, do you really want to know? Look, let me just give you a little word of wisdom here. Don't ask God questions to which you do not want the answer. Because God's not going to lie to you. God's going to tell if you really want to know, God will tell you. And I'm telling you that there are times when we ought to do some introspection and say, God, how do you see me? God, what am I doing wrong in my life? So I don't know of anything, preacher. Well, that's fine. Maybe there isn't anything, but maybe there is give god the opportunity to show you Amen. 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 Right. hallelujah because he's the one that judges we cannot compare ourselves among ourselves
1: right. Right. second corinthians ten, twelve: for we dare not make ourselves of the number or compare ourselves with some that commend themselves but they measuring themselves by themselves And comparing themselves among themselves are not wise. Now
0: now listen, again, I don't have time to really get into this. But I'm going to tell you, church, this is one of the most dangerous things that we can allow to happen to us is when we start comparing ourselves to somebody else. Even as a church. Well, that church does it. That church allows it. Or that church preaches against it. Why don't we? Look, let's quit comparing ourselves among ourselves. I've raised three kids and I'm going to tell you that every one of my three children were different. There were some of them that they could just get that look and they'd be in tears and ready to do whatever they had to do to make it right. But some, it took a lot more than a look. Can I get a witness? And can I tell you, churches are the same way not every church is exactly alike not every church responds the same way and so we can't sit around and say well they allow it and they allow it and they allow it why don't we no look there may be some reason why God says no to this assembly so don't compare yourself among yourself same thing is true just among saints you look at somebody and say well i'm just as good as they are i'm just as spiritual as they are that's the wrong measuring stick you want to know how you ought to measure your life measure it against jesus christ and when you start using him as the measuring stick every one of us myself included are going to come up short it's not about whether I'm better than this one or as good as that one. It's how do I measure up to him? And that, uh, that leaves me with a lot of work to do. And I'm going to tell you when I'm using him as my personal measuring stick, I don't have time to be measuring anybody else. I don't have time to be finding fault with anybody else if I'm spending my time measuring myself. Well, praise God. All right, all right. You're not running the aisles tonight for some reason. Jesus said to them, you've got a name that you live. But he said, really, you're dead. You're dead. There's no life in you. And 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 look I'm not I'm not trying to do what I just said don't do. I'm not comparing ourselves among ourselves. But I'm just telling you I am concerned that so many churches are learning how to go through the motions of having church. They learn how to do it. You know, one of the things I didn't I didn't put it in my notes. I wasn't thinking about how applicable it was and so i left it out but as i was doing this study one of the things that i ran across was when cyrus conquered sardis he wanted to make sure that they never became what they once were and so he refused them to do any kind of work that was mining related or carpentry related Uh, he wouldn't let them build anything He wouldn't let them. What he did is he taught them the arts. And they had to raise their children playing music, dancing a certain way, making money, doing those kinds of things. And so they learned to sing the song and do the dance. And never became productive. God help us, God help us that we don't come to church and just learn how to sing the songs and do the dance. And never really build anything, never construct anything, never do any good for the kingdom of God. But boy, we know how to shout. And I want us to shout. I'm worried when we don't shout. And and you know that. I sure don't want us to stop shouting. But I don't want shouting to be the focus. I want shouting. I want dancing. I want worship to be the result. We've spent time in prayer. We've spent time in outreach. We've done the other things that God wants us to do. And when we come to church, we're rejoicing. Because of the goodness of God and how he's helped us, we're not just dancing to the beat of the music. All right, all right, all right. It's starting to get a little tight now. But it's, it's happening far too often in our apostolic ranks. They're just, they've just learned to sing the song and do the dance. And that's all they know. And I don't want this church to be that way. I don't want us to fall into the trap Sardis fell into. We've got a name that we're alive. But there's no real life there. I don't want this to be a Jesus name mosh pit. (laughs) Some of you don't know what that is. I guess maybe it, I I didn't know. I, that's, I'm too old to have experienced any of that, but they may have a different name for it now or maybe doing something different. I don't know, but that's when they'd all just kind of pile around the front and, you know, everybody just get in here and go crazy. And, and, uh, I want you dancing. I want you shouting. Please don't misunderstand what I'm saying, but I want there to be a purpose behind it. I want us to know what we're shouting about. I want us to know why we're worshiping God, not just going through the motions. All right, I've got to hurry. I've got to hurry. Oh, Lord Jesus, is it really that late? Um... I'm not doing bad I got 12 pages of notes and I'm on page 6 <laughs> I got halfway done in, in um, 50 minutes so that means another 50 minutes well nobody said amen alright alright do what? you'll take the blame alright 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 Well, you may be the only one staying here to listen to it. I don't know. (laughs) So here's what the Lord said. We're going to skip over these these next few verses here. Uh, Go on to Revelation 3, verse 2. Here's what he said about them.
1: Be watchful and strengthen the things which remain that are ready to die. For I have not found thy works perfect before God. Now,
0: I pointed this out when he was reading the entire letter. But this means so much more to me now that I know the history of the city. For the Lord to use this terminology, be watchful. That immediately spoke to those people. I can promise you they knew what had brought them down on more than one occasion. I can promise you they were well aware of what it was that had been their downfall over and over again throughout history. And the Lord was saying to the church at Sardis, don't be a casualty spiritually the way you've been politically. Learn something from this situation and be watchful. Be watchful. Be watchful. And then he says, strengthen the things that remain. Now, I want you to know uh, Jesus said to them, you've got a name that you live, but you're dead. He said, I I know your works. and This is what it is. You appear to be all right. You claim to be all right, but really you're not all right. But the Lord did not say that everything you're doing is, is wrong. He didn't say that. And now he clarifies. He said, I want you to strengthen those things which remain. He said, I've not found your works perfect. He didn't say, I found all your works wrong. But I haven't found your works perfect before God. Now what that says to me when you take the entire thing in context is the Lord says there are some things that you're still doing right. Focus on those things. Strengthen those things. Let's start with what you've got and build from there. Hallelujah. And listen, Listen. this is important because saints of god if if we're not careful the devil will point out every flaw every failure every mistake and say there's no use in trying and this is the flip side of where sardis was but i want to come along as your pastor and say don't let the devil trick you into that mindset there are some things surely that you know you're doing right There's got to be some things you know you're doing right. And if you know you're doing those things right, keep doing them and strengthen them. Get better at the things you know are right. And I'm going to tell you, if you'll start there, it won't be long until you'll be picking up the other things and working on the other things. But if you keep the mindset that there's no use, I got this problem and this problem and this problem, there's no use in me living for God. You'll never get anywhere. So don't let the devil keep you blinded by everything that's wrong. Yes, take time. Ask God what's wrong. But also ask God what's right with me, God. What do you see in my life that you love? What is it about me that you just keep working on my life? I feel this tonight. Listen to me. You would not be here if the Spirit didn't draw you here. So why is he drawing you? He must see something good. He must see something right. I'm trying to help somebody tonight. I'm trying to help somebody tonight. Hallelujah. He must see something right or he wouldn't keep drawing you to this place say, well, I'm here because I have to be here. No, 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 no. Let Let me ask you another question. Have you felt the touch of God? Has God touched you? If God's touched you, evidently he still sees some good in you. You've not become worthless to him. He has not cast you aside. He's not thrown you away. There's still something good there. So find out what it is. And strengthen what remains. Well, praise God. Strengthen those things that remain. Now, he did say they're ready to die. And I believe the reason is because we get so focused on the negatives that we start neglecting more and more that we know is right.
1: Rather than hanging
0: on to what we know is right and strengthening what we know is right, we feel overwhelmed by what we know is wrong. And we think, what's the use? And we just give it all up. Don't do that. Don't do that. Hallelujah. Now, there's also the possibility that the Lord in saying, strengthen what remains, maybe, just maybe, he was also making reference to a remnant that was still a part of his church, which we're not going to have time to get that far tonight. But, um, but uh, he does address a remnant in the church. And uh, it's very possible that he was saying to the church at Sardis, look, strengthen those that are still doing what's right. Don't neglect them. Don't let... Don't let your condemnation that you're not doing right cause you to cut off the ones that are. And I've seen that happen many, many times. People feel condemned by those that do right. And so all of a sudden, they don't want anything to do with them. And, and the Lord's saying to Sardis, don't let that happen. Those that are doing right, encourage them. Strengthen them. Help them. Listen, if Sardis loses that remnant, they've got nothing left. So strengthen what remains. Strengthen what is still there. Praise God. Give me just a couple more minutes here. And um, we're, we're still trying to work our way through what the Lord found wrong with the church. And then we'll have to pick up next time with how to fix it, because I'm not going to have time to get into that. But give me just a few more moments here. Now, before I go on, let's go back, and I want you to read Revelation 3, verses 1 and 2 together. And, and then I want to point something out to you. Uh, Revelation 3, verses 1 and 2, read.
1: And unto the angel of the church in Sardis write, These things saith he that hath the seven spirits of God. And the seven stars, and I know thy works, that thou hast a name that thou livest and art dead.
0: All right, now, now, now he says in verse 1, These things saith he that hath the seven spirits of God. You Remember that I told you the Lord is identifying himself as the perfect one. All right, so keep that in mind. That's how he opens this letter. I'm the perfect one. And
1: then the very next verse, verse 2, he says, Be watchful and strengthen the things which remain that are ready to die, for I have not found thy works perfect before God.
0: So this is where this ties together. And this is why the Lord identified himself as the perfect one. Because he said, I have found your works are not perfect. Now look, it'd be easy for me to go around and say this is not perfect, this is not perfect, this is not perfect. But it's not going to carry much weight when everybody can see how imperfect I am. But when the Lord says, I'm the perfect one and your works are not perfect, he has every right. To declare what's perfect and what's not perfect. He has every right to say you may think it's good. But it's not good enough. He has that right. Because he has the seven spirits of God. He and he alone has the right to judge. Whether their works were perfect. And they weren't. Now let me tell you something. Again I want to just. Let you be reminded that perfection is something the Lord expects. Not a whole lot of response there, um, because again, you're thinking in terms of our definition and not God's definition. But listen to this, Matthew 5:48. Now
1: this is Jesus.: Be therefore perfect, even as your Father, which is in heaven, is perfect."
0: Now is that a command? Is that a command from Jesus? Do we have to obey the commands of Jesus? How about the Apostle Paul, 2 Corinthians 13, 11?
1: Finally, brethren, farewell. Be perfect. What? Be, be perfect. Paul said it too, didn't he? Be perfect. Is that an apostolic command?
0: Yes, sir. All right, so why is it that we think we don't have to obey this? I'll tell you why because we put our own definition there we cannot accomplish perfection if we're going to look at it as flawlessness but that's not what Jesus or Paul commanded of us what he commanded was be mature grow up get everything you need don't be an infant from now on hello you know, it's it's fine for a baby to not be able to walk and talk. But at some point you get concerned if they're not walking and talking. Amen. And that's what the Lord and Paul were both saying when he says, be perfect. He said, Come on, grow up. Get everything you need. Don't keep talking baby talk. Don't keep getting offended at every little thing that comes along. Getting your feelings hurt by everything you misunderstand. Grow up a little bit. Be mature. Be perfect. Be of good comfort. Be of one mind. Live in peace. All of this is a part of biblical perfection. And the God of love and peace, he said, finish that off for me
1: be perfect, be of comfort, be of one mind, live in peace, and the God, the God of, love and peace of love and peace shall be with you. Shall be with you.
0: I want the Lord to be with me. I want the Lord to be with me. And so I'm going to work on growing up. I don't want to just stay the way I've always been, spiritually, spiritually. I don't, you know, people say, well, I'm just as spiritual today as I was last year. Well, that's not good enough. You wouldn't, you wouldn't accept that out of a three-year-old that's turned four. Well, I, you know, they're just as good at four as they were at three and they haven't improved any. At some point you want to see some progress. And that's what the Lord is saying to us. Don't be content with where you are but always strive to grow in grace always strive to become more in your walk with God than you have ever been before this is what Sardis failed to do they grew comfortable they grew uh, lazy they got to a place they thought everything's all right just like it is and the Lord wants, wanted them, and wants us to strive for spiritual maturity. James one and four. I'll close with this. They'll come to the music now. James one and four.
1: But let patience have her perfect work. Let patience have her perfect work. That ye may be ye perfect ye may be and perfect entire,
0: and entire,
1: wanting nothing,
0: wanting nothing. Now, this word wanting nothing doesn't mean God's going to give you a million dollars and a Rolls Royce, but you got to take it in context that you may be perfect and entire. We could say lacking nothing that is necessary in your spiritual walk. That's what he's saying to the church. Let patience have her perfect work in you so that you can be perfect and entire and you won't be lacking the things you need spiritually. That ought to be our goal. That ought to be what we're striving for. Let's stand. Lift our hands to the Lord, everybody, right now. Come on, let's reach out to him. like him I want him to change me I want him to transform me into his image I don't want to stay the way I've always been but I want to continue to mature spiritually continue to grow in grace is that the way you feel tonight God I don't want to be like Sardis I don't want to reach a place of complacency but I want to be ever watchful I want to be ever watchful I want to be on alert I want to be fighting for what's right and against what's wrong perfect me God change me God make me what you want me to be Come on, let's reach out to Him. One more time, everybody. Let's reach out to the Lord. stand around the front. Let's close out this service with just a few moments of commitment to the Lord. God, I want to become what you want me to be. I want to be what you want me to be, God. I don't want to be the judge of my own life. I want you to lead me, to guide me, to direct me, to help me, to change me, to purify and purge me cleanse and wash me to transform me oh let's talk to him right now let's talk